Welcome everybody. Thanks for joining. This is Kiefer uh, with the with my new Veritrium podcast, uh, the only only source with an element of truth. Uh, brought to you by Body.io, uh, which is also pretty much synonymous with me anyway. So uh, this is another phone call consultation that I did, uh, which was a result of individuals being able to uh, essentially donate uh, or purchase uh, an hour of my time to ask whatever. And I really wanted these calls to be focused on the individual and how I could help them to tweak their diet or give them some lifestyle advice, training advice, whatever, uh, almost anything. And the first... A pretty significant section of this conversation, uh, Philip, who I talked to, took the opportunity to ask me all kinds of, of questions, some of them about the body and some of them on broader issues. So this ran over the hour timeline, uh, which didn't bother me at all because uh, for the last 30 minutes or so, I, I really tried to change the focus to get him to ask me questions where I could directly help him. Uh, so the the last part of the last 30 minutes or so are more focused on individual characteristics of his diet and his physiology to where I had to give really pointed information for those situations. Now, before that, uh, just to warn you, uh, we talk about just about everything, uh, you know, including global warming to um, carbon emissions to cattle to, you know, all, all kinds of things are smattered in the first hour or so. So I hope everybody enjoys all of it. Uh, and... Yeah, un- unfortunately, I lost Philip at the end of this, so you'll hear kind of a pretty, pretty abrupt cutoff. But I- I'm just gonna leave it like that. Uh, I'll cut off the probably dozen times I asked if if he was still there, hoping that it would reconnect, but it never did. So I'll cut that off. But otherwise, it it, it drops rather abruptly, and uh, that that's the reason why. All right. Hope everybody enjoys and finds something of value in this. Um, just stress in general um, when it comes to health. Um, how much do things like, you know, meditation, you know, away from the nutrition side, um, anxiety, depression, things like that, how much of those contributing to, say, excess body fat or um, disease states? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, how much can we, if we release that and not even look at the nutrition part, you know, how, how far can we go? Well, that's kind of a, a double-edged blade, so to speak. So if you don't want to pay attention to diet, which is sort of in the spirit of your question, and let's say somebody's has a standard diet that has car even if it's somewhat healthy if it's a standard diet with carbohydrates it quote unquote healthy uh, you know they're not eating junk 
then stress can have major metabolic effects on the negative side that you know accumulated weight gain they, it can eventually screw up thyroid hormone production it can screw up the sex hormone production and it, if somebody has depression then you know those those mental states also interplay with eating carbohydrates i mean car- carbohydrates really shift the production of everything and and since they raise insulin they also change how other hormones work um but the flip side of that question is if we only want to focus on diet how much do we have to worry about stress and those other issues and that really flips it on its head because if you're doing let's just to make it simple, let's say you're doing a pure ketogenic diet, the amount of stress and cortisol that and elevated stress hormones that you have are almost nothing but beneficial. Without insulin present in high, in recurring high amounts, cortisol helps repair connective tissue. It helps mobilize body fat. Um, it can help the mitochondria kind of shifts the energy focus so mitochondria start running the way they should be a little more effectively it makes catecholamines more effective so your body doesn't have to dump as much adrenaline and other things like that um, it can even out brain chemistry so you know depression becomes less problematic or less of an issue uh, so it's interesting if if you only want to focus on stress in those things you have to do a ton of work to try to eliminate your stress and your depression and come up with a lot of methodology to deal with it. I mean, I've, I've battled with depression since I was a teen and I've developed, you know, through some of that, I developed a lot of tools to deal with it when I was later in life. But as I shifted my diet and did it longer and longer, it, it became really unnecessary. Like now the descent into depression is so slow and controlled. I can sense it and it's much, much easier to manage. Um, yeah. Whereas when I was younger, when that descent started, I mean, I was just like downhill. Yeah. I mean, we don't have to go down the whole, uh, you know, witness consciousness uh, rabbit hole, but yeah being aware of those emotions as they rise and those those thought patterns that come up can be uh, really helpful. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people, especially in today's world, lack any kind of introspective intelligence. They just, they can't dive into themselves to analyze themselves. So ho- hopefully that kind of answered your, your question. Yeah, it did. I mean... I- I, I didn't mean to, you know, make it sound like, uh, you know, meditation in a vacuum can can cure all or any of those types of practices, um, because diet definitely plays in. And there's a, there's, yeah, you need, you probably need both. Um, I've just noticed uh, that, and maybe because my diet was already good, because I've been listening to you for the last six years. Um, you know, I notice when insulin is coming on in my, you know, in my body, I can feel, I, I know what that feeling feels like now, where I, you know, people that are on high carb diets 
don't have any awareness of that. They just they just take a nap after every meal and that's normal. <laughs> uh, <right>. Yeah. <laughs> so um yeah, I've noticed that caffeine has been a thing that I've had to not completely get off of, but uh, has caused uh, some low levels of anxiety throughout the day, and I've had to wean off uh, and, and cycle off of it occasionally. Yeah, once you get overstimmed, it's 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 a really uncomfortable feeling and so however reactive you might be to caffeine and how long it stays in your system uh yeah that cannot be fun i've i've hit that tipping point before with stimulants like caffeine or whatever and you hit that that point where it's just you just crossed a threshold and you can feel the anxiety and your heart speeds up yeah, it's not fun yeah it's tough balancing the uh, the amount of work that needs to be done and, <laughs> and the amount of caffeine you need to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Back to kind of the original topic. I mean, that's that's one reason I I think the diet piece is just so important because you know you get your diet under wraps and stress just really becomes much much less of an issue. Of course, it's there in your life, but. And mentally, it might be difficult to deal with, but your body is more able to deal with the stress situation. And mm. um, I, I, I just think that's so important, you know, when you take carbs out of the diet, like everything, everything we know, everything we think like stress is bad and whatever, that's all in a carbohydrate-based context. Uh, so you strip those out and everything changes. Um, wh yeah. which doesn't address meditation. Um, that's, I, I find it an interesting topic for some people. It works really well and it's about 50, 50 and usually meditation gurus never talk about the other 50%. And that's where <laughs> meditation actually drives them into a worse mental state and sometimes higher anxiety. And, it's because as they sit and they focus and they try to clear their mind, their mind actually gets on a positive feedback loop of the negative thoughts. And it actually makes them worse. So it, it's one of those things you just can't, I mean, I can't say, yeah, meditation is great for everybody. It's like, you know, you can try it and see what happens. Um, but it's not... It, it's not one of those things, oh, I'll just start meditating, everything's going to get better. It, yeah. Like, you can start meditating, everything will get worse. Okay, yeah, good uh, Good to know. Um, so, have you watched, uh, there's a documentary, uh, Down to Earth with Zac Efron on Netflix. <laughs> uh, there's a guy named Darren Olean on there. Seems to be very high-carb. Uh Seems to be his recommendations. You know, a lot of fruits and vegetables. Uh, um, yeah, I haven't seen it, so. Well, I guess my, my question is, how does fiber play in here? I've, I think I've heard, you know, maybe you say you don't necessarily need it or vegetables just aren't really only, only need to be used as a vessel for butter. 
Um, yeah. I don't know if you still... <laughs> yeah, no, that's still pretty much true. Okay. Uh, so does fiber play in at all? Do you, is it how your digestion is and how your, you know, your, your bowel movements are? Are those things to take into consideration? It is, again, a completely contextual question on your diet. If, if you're eating, so let's say you wanted to go the route of that, like super high carbs, vegetables, fruits, and maybe little animal or no animal kind of stuff, then fiber is going to play a somewhat significant role because you're going to get quite a few short chain fatty acids out of it, which your body can use very quickly as fuel. Um, so okay. that that becomes important in that scenario. We'll leave that with that scenario. Uh, if you're transitioning from a lot of carbs to ketogenic or carbonite solution or CBL, something like that, then it, it could also be important to help to get things moving properly at first. But then it might be really important to prevent things from moving too quickly because there's a lot of transition in not just your gut microbiota but also enzymes and there's all kinds of receptors in the digestive tract that allow stuff to go through and out and so some of those have been downregulated. regulated uh, so, so fiber can be very important during that transition. And then after that, there's there's not necessarily any benefit, and and by the same token, really not potentially any downside to including fiber. And and I'm keeping it focused on fiber because eating fibrous vegetables is then a little different. There could potentially be a downside to that, although I doubt it. Um, some some research could be interpreted in that light. Uh, I still think it would just be neutral. It's just kind of neutral. Do you have any recommendations for, you know, foods with fiber that other than vegetables? Oh, uh, yeah, I I don't know of any <laughs> other sources of fiber other than from plants. <laughs> Well, yeah, uh, I mean, I guess there's like, you know, there's like chia seed or you could have like a sweet potato, you know. Yeah. You're still going to drift towards the, the lower carb option. Yeah. Collagen, in a sense, if you're willing to eat animal tendons, is almost like an animal-based fiber. It can okay. work the same way to, to slow things or to, to help regulate things without feeding the microbiota um okay yeah i have a i have a family member um you know they've eaten high fiber a lot of salads for most of their life very low fat uh you know, grew up in the margarine days and all that and uh they're still pretty resistant to the idea um and their digestion's out of whack uh you know they don't you know, sometimes they don't go for a few days. And yeah. I don't. Um, do you have any recommendations for somebody facing issues like that? 
facing the issue of being stuck in the 1970s dietary recommendations <laughs> or facing the issue of being stuck in the, uh, I guess, digestive area. Do you fix the diet and the digestion will follow? Normally, yes. Okay. It, it, it can take some time, though. Unfortunately, again, like I was saying, you have a pretty, you have a long transition path. And the deeper in the disease state somebody is, the problem is trying to mobilize those receptors in the digestive tract and everything to get everything back on track that takes energy production and that takes healthy cells. Well, if the the cells are damaged across, you know, systemically in the body, that transition can take a lot, lot longer. And sometimes they might be so damaged that it just won't happen. Uh, and, and then you really have to do a lot of work for that individual to get their diet dialed in to where they feel good and everything's kind of working right but in general you should poop as many times in a day as you eat <laughs> that's pretty much the natural rhythm we should be on i i can imagine most people are very far away from that oh yeah yeah you're you're they're not going to the bathroom for days thing that's so common it's almost ridiculous yeah man it's it's also tough to tough to get out of those patterns for sure. Um, it took me I don't know I've been listening to your podcast probably since 2013. I mean I remember when you had dangerously hardcore. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I think I've listened to every single one, and I mean it took me a couple of years of getting on the low carb and then falling out of it and then getting back on it and then falling out of it before I gained some steam. Um, I was a professional athlete. I played baseball and um, it just, all the recommendations nutritionally were, you know, you get peanut butter and jelly sandwiches you know, and fruit in the locker room before the game. And that's that's what you got for a while. Yeah. <laughs> so I do like low carb in the off season, then I go in season and like they just you know, feed me sugar all day. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, and that that's that can be scary when people's lives are on the line, like first responders in a lot of cities and a lot of states in the United States, you know, if they have to go into a burning building or whatever, they can only be in there for a very limited amount of time and they have to come out and another crew goes in to replace them. But while they're out of the building, they're forced to drink a certain amount of Gatorade and not sugar-free Gatorade, but <laughs> full on Gatorade. So, you know, they have a really hard time, trying to eat properly and if they don't drink the gatorade they can't go back into the fire like they can't do their job uh so it was a big challenge working with the firefighters in phoenix for exactly what you're talking about you know they they just would give them the wrong thing so if they were eating the right diet and then put in the situation an emergency with a fire and then forced to drink gatorade halfway through 
they're going back into the building with a little bit of a brain fog, which yeah. you, you absolutely, I mean, their life and the life of people they may need to help are in, are in danger at that point. And, you know, there, there was almost no way to change that, that it, it was codified at the highest levels of local government and there was no, they had no interest in changing that recommendation. Yeah, it's, I, uh, on some levels, I think government's great, and then others, they're 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 in too deep on things that maybe they should stay out of. But that's a that's another topic. Yeah, I was gonna say that. As a tangent, we probably don't want to talk. Uh, yeah, we'll stay out of the politics today. Um, so, as far as uh, back to the peanut butter and jelly sandwich, I mean, I know you used to recommend. If you're experiencing, um, if you're if you're struggling to get through your workouts, that might be a good thing to have, like a little bit of fat and a little bit of carbs together. But otherwise, I th- did you recommend that you want to basically keep them separate? Um, fats and carbs, you don't want to eat them at the same time. Is that correct? Uh. Well, that's another one of those depends. I, I've kind of come to realize that every question is a depends. Yeah, like the human <laughs> body is just a quagmire of questions with the same answer. It depends. Right. Um. So when I had talked about that, like peanut butter and jelly and stuff like that, the focus there was with strongman competitors and powerlifters because they have workouts that last three to four hours. That makes um, a lot of sense. Yeah. So in general, I would say you should, you probably never need to eat anything during a workout, you know, and then of course that has to be modified for s- certain uh, athletic activities or athletic goals. Um, in general, it, if you're eating all your carbs at night and let's say, you know, earlier I, I talked with somebody and they just have one, one meal every night and they try to get all their carbs into that meal since it's one meal it doesn't matter they can eat their carbs and their fats together it doesn't matter they're not going to be in the bloodstream at the same time any disruption that's going to be caused by introducing carbs into a system that's currently burning fat that's somewhat attenuated by the fact that they ate fat with the carbs so in that scenario mixing the fat and the carbs is your best option um in other scenarios if you're eating multiple meals you know you just would want to try to push off that fat as late into the day as possible um but you know that just require it it requires so many qualifications you know i'd have to go through and Say, oh, okay, well, on this type of diet, if you're on this eating schedule, then this is your ideal mixing of nutrients. But if you're on this type of diet and this is your eating schedule, then this is more ideal and so on and so forth. Uh, that's what makes carb night and carb backloading much, much easier to describe to people because it's instead of it depends, I get to say, don't worry about it. <laughs> so people that eat like one meal a day um it, does 
the caloric load, like, I know how you feel about calories from a fat loss and weight loss perspective, but is there ever danger of drifting towards, you know, the wrong, the, the other end of the spectrum, getting too low because you're only eating one meal a day? Oh, well, always. It, there's a lot of complications there. You know, your 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 body needs to repair tissue. If you look at, say, the protein turnover rate in the skin on a, we'll say, ketogenic diet, so it's not complicated with carbohydrates, it's, like, really high. A lot of your protein usage for the normal individual goes into the skin. The skin is a huge consumer of protein well it has a huge breakdown rate and a huge synthesis rate uh and what happens when you start trying to go longer and longer without food or you're only eating one meal a day for long periods of time is those processes get very they become very slow they're down regulated heavily and if you look at just the cells that makes and you look at certain markers then that makes the cells look healthier and that's also why in young animals that you do that with, they have an extended lifespan because there's just less damage. Uh, the flip side of that is if you already have damage, your body just can't fix it. And you'll see – and that's another thing. Carbohydrates slow down protein turnover rate in the skin. That's why women get cottage cheese in the thighs. That's why our skin ages the way it does as we get older and it gets wrinkly and gets those spots. It's because we've turned off the body's full capacity to always regenerate the skin. Um, so, so having those really long periods without food, they have some positive effect, but they also have significant negative effect. Uh, so it's not so much the calories I would be worried about. Just those long durations would not be advisable. And then – you know, if they're eating too few calories on top of it, they just exacerbate that situation. Hmm. Interesting. If, if, if all of that was coherent. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I think skin is something a lot of a lot of people leave out of the equation. I I would have never thought that protein, uh, the majority of it goes to our skin. Yeah, it's it's really surprising and you know and so of course that, that's something i had to work into my equations your protein requirements change when you go ketogenic significantly because of your skin wow that's uh that's, so what would be your recommended protein intake is it you know one gram per pound of body weight or yeah if you're just go in as generic as possible uh, that's that's pretty good for most athletes and 30 percent of the u.s population that starts to go off the rails as you get into the overweight categories and obese categories uh, that's gonna be too much protein but the adjustment i mean it involves like lambert w functions and stuff like that so it's it's not linear it's not easy to really describe but um uh, yeah so i'll just leave it at that i'm not even going to try to come up with some linear scale that you could go off of once once you get into those higher categories yeah just um 
for a healthier person who's resistance training, um, would you ever want to go higher than than one gram per pound of body weight? Is there any negative um, drawbacks there? There's really not. Um, it's there's a lot to cover with that and the simple answer and i'll give you that since we're on the clock the simple answer is you can go pretty high with protein intake without any negative consequences okay good to know yeah yeah is it is it going to increase yeah no is is it going to increase um you know, muscle repair or skin repair? Is it? Uh, no, not there's, necessarily. There's that's really what I'm, is there, a, you know, <laughs> is there a threshold where it's just not worth it anymore? Um, <laughs> I mean, there is, it, it's, it's really complicated. <laughs> okay. And, and I don't say that to be an ass or to be obtuse or to pretend like uh, you're, you're potentially obtuse in this subject. It's, it's complicated because your body doesn't use protein at an even rate all day long. There's a waveform and the waveform doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily going to fit with how you eat with your eating pattern. And, and that's okay because the body can store the excess protein and depending on how it's stored, it will then release that protein back during the times that your diet's not making up for the pro the amino acids necessary for all the repair work and everything like that. Um, so overloading with protein periodically is not a bad strategy. If you don't want to pay attention to things in really minute detail. Um, but yeah, the caveat of that is you <laughs> might get a little bit of fatigue from that because you do release, um, the, the nitrogen, which can make you a little fatigued and you have to eat more protein than normal because half of it gets wasted in that storage release scenario. Um, so yeah, the, the whole reason I, I follow your diets is because I don't really have to track much. I can get a general, <laughs> you know, I, I don't have to really pay that much attention to calories. I just make sure I'm keeping it low carb and staying satiated and things pretty much take care of themselves. Yeah, it makes it, it, it just makes life so much easier to, uh, you know, most, so many diets have like just crazy prescriptions and it's, it's like, oh my God, there's, there's just no way you could follow that for any length of time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, back to the you know topic of fasting, like, is it just the lack of carbs in the bloodstream that allow for autophagy or is that no food at all or um, that's usually the argument that i hear for the the benefit of fasting is about autophagy and you know you need to clean the cells out 
Uh, I mean, there's a lot more going on when you go into calorie deprivation. And I would say in general, focusing on autophagy is just really short-sighted. It's just, it, it, it's one of those kitschy subjects that started to be elucidated in the early 2000s and some people picked up on it and ran with it, you know, not it, they ran with it as an independent topic. Um, so it's kind of one of those, you miss the forest for the trees. And yeah, it, re- it, it really is just the lack of insulin and carbohydrates that allow autophagy and all of the, there's, it's not only autophagy, it's the misfolded protein response um, it's the uncoupling protein responses as well, which can help divert some of the energy so that it doesn't cause any oxidative issues. Uh, you, you know, it's the energy through throughput through the mitochondria that's causing damage that then might kill mitochondria that the autophagy system, then the lysosomal system needs to take care of. Uh, so it, it's not just autophagy. That's just one of the processes that's insulin and carbs turn off they just turn it off or they overload it with so much crap that it just can't keep up even if it is functioning at capacity uh so so and the fasting is like you know if all you have is a hammer everything looks like a nail and and they're they're just not sophisticated enough to come up with anything more than oh we'll just fast like fasting does everything we want it to do we just won't think about it more than that so just fast do you see this more coming from the scientific side of health and nutrition or is it more the instagram uh coaches you know that are that are pushing this uh there's it's just this this weird mix so there's there's a deep seated scientific community that's only looking at very specific processes and they're trying to elucidate those processes and what triggers them, what makes them go awry, things like that. Um, And that community in general isn't very interested in diet as a whole. You know, they're they're interested in their piece of the puzzle. And, And in general, that's how science works. Uh, at least in the the Western world. Well, no, pretty much in the modern world, that's how science works. Uh, so those people just don't give a shit. And then you have another level up where people aren't focused on the details. They're, they're focused on some larger system, let's say a hormonal system that affects a lot of things. But that, again, that's all they understand. And at that point, that group starts to talk about diet and how you should eat. And then you have another step up where people are doing basically epidemiological work, which is just data collection and analysis, mm-hmm. and who are running kind of larger picture studies, like getting a group of people and feeding them in a certain way. And those are the ones that will then leap on the results of the study as if it's some sort of proven phenomenon, where the results of their study or the results of their analysis are really just the stepping stone to asking the question, okay, why did we get these results with this diet? The end result shouldn't be, oh my God, this is how everybody should eat. The end result of that study should be, okay, why did we get these results? And they don't ask those questions because 
I mean, honestly, there's so much money now in come in trying to come up with some branded diet or some new diet idea. There's more incentive for them to make that shift in career to where they're no longer doing studies and they're primarily focused on selling the results of an observation. So in the deep seated scientific community, you just don't see anything like that uh, coming out of it. And then as you creep up and you get to, you know, the higher level epidemiologists, you know, they're the ones who are making these claims. And then, of course, that just spills over into Instagram and everybody else so that whatever's kitschy is what's going to be sold. Yeah. Um, so you, I'm not sure if that answered your question, actually. But Yeah, I, I mean, I think it does. I think it, we're just getting at that it seems... It, there's a lot of different parts, and none of them are talking to each other. Um, it's a big problem with software. <laughs> there's a lot <laughs> yeah. of programs out there that do one thing really well, but when you need it to connect to other things in that industry, it just can't do anything. Uh, you know, you got to create a whole different software to, to talk to it. You know, and it's just mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so I feel like that's where nutrition is, um, and. and I don't understand. I mean, I guess when you get into specialization, uh, that's where you end up. You know, you just, you get too deep that you miss what's on the surface sometimes. Yeah, even in physics. I mean, most physicists, and and this is, of course, where I have direct experience in academia. Most physicists, their PhD work is on one tiny little specific problem, like super tiny. I mean, it's so minute, you wouldn't believe how almost inconsequential it is. But that's what they get their PhD work in. And they've spent four years studying that one little thing. And now all of a sudden, when you go to this person and say, hey, I need to, I need you to figure out the grand unified theory of everything. Well, like, no, you wouldn't. They don't have a comprehension of that at all. They haven't been working in it. And so you, you've see some scientists in the health field doing that like you know Rhonda Patrick is a good example who always comes to mind I mean she's a brilliant mitochondrial researcher in mice like brilliant but that's all she knows but because of that work she just you know there's this different mentality about human bodies for some reason it's like oh well if I know how any one single piece works, I know how everything works, and I can just tell people how to eat. Um, it, it, and it it baffles my mind. That That's what made me, yeah, I'm sure you heard me talking about it several times. It's what made me really sit down and come up with a a more rigorous philosophy of science so that I could understand what science was to understand why health is not yet a science. Like, why is it always so off the rails? Yeah. I mean, it really is. And it, it really comes down to more, you know, ideology and what camp are you in rather than what's the, what's the best way to do this. Yeah. That's not quite too disturbing because right before every major science or field within a science has coalesced 
into into something that has a theoretical framework that's proven over and over again this is the behavior you see you see a lot of ideologies you see tons of ideas being thrown around um so this actually gives me a little hope that we're on the cusp of a real science of health and just a science of the human body in general as a whole you know we're on the cusp of that forming and that's i want to be on that i want to help to at least spark that cusp yeah i mean i i've felt that in you for a while and you know just honestly that's why i I made a donation because i i really believe in what you're doing and uh really thank you for what you're doing it's i think it's really important work thanks i really appreciate it a lot yeah so um yeah how (laughs) this might be just too far off into the weeds but you know instagram coaches are a big thing Mm -hmm. um do you see them causing more problems you know creating um a little more ambiguity there as far as where to go or do you see them as an overall uh positive effect to at least lead the general population in some direction towards health Ah, man, that's a loaded question. (laughs) I mean, because they could be leading people down a path that'll make them feel better temporarily, but makes them so sick that that when it catches up again, there's nothing they can do. And, you know, there's no qualifications to be an Instagram diet guru or Instagram coach. Uh, so, So it's really just, I'm sure you could come up with some statistical distribution of how many people fall into each bracket of you know they are recommending a diet that'll at least keep people from getting more sick or they're recommending a diet that'll make people more sick or they're recommending a diet that'll make people really sick and i bet it's just kind of a normal normal distribution you know just chance essentially you know there's no rhyme or reason to it whatsoever so from that perspective trying to look at it as you know just logically and pragmatically as possible i would say it's not a good thing but it's also indicative of the state of health as a science because it's not there yet Um, right so from that perspective it's kind of a good thing because we're we're getting there um but their behavior is not necessarily a good thing right is this a is this a western problem um i mean obviously the u.s is you know not high on the the charts as far as healthiest countries uh is it capitalism uh play a part into this you know getting all the garbage supplements into the market or is there better Uh economic well, uh, structure for health. <laughs> uh, the 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 laissez-faire capitalism uh, especially around supplements in the US like I I that does play a large part in what you see in the US with the Instagram models and everything like that. Um I I think part of it is in having traveled around different parts of the world now 
you know, it's interesting. I can be in a country for a couple days and I can tell you how far behind they are from the U.S. in their obesity epidemic. Like Serbia is probably 50 years behind. Uh, Iceland is more like 20 to 25 years behind. The UK is right there with the US. Um, Spain is somewhere in the 20 to 30 range behind the US. Um, So, and it's kind of incredible to see that. And what I would imagine will happen is the exact same thing that's happening in the United States as these countries move closer and closer to the same status as the United States. I mean, it's already almost happening in uh, United Arab Emirates. They have an incredible obesity problem, and they have a bunch of money. And a lot of friends I had that were coaches or whatever moved to Dubai because they were basically a 24-hour fitness trainer in the United States, and they go to Dubai – and they can just say stupid shit, and all of a sudden they're making a million dollars a year. Um, and, and and that's the perfect model of what's happened in the U.S. They had a population, ton of people got fat, and there's a lot of money there. And so they're just grasping at any solution they can get to try to improve their situation. Uh, and the capitalist structure that's in Dubai allowed that to really happen and pr- proliferate quickly so 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 when you say behind you're saying that just the u.s um i guess has is ahead of them what economically technologically no no um, disease state um i i would call it disease state inheritance okay so when if somebody's born healthy and they're on a standard American diet, even if they're eating a quote-unquote healthy version of it, it's going to be 20 to 25 years before they display the first symptoms of the disease state. Okay. Okay, so So, if a woman, whatever disease state she's in, if she gets pregnant and gives birth during that point of the disease state, she passes on her disease state to the child. It's this it's an amazing epigenetic phenomenon that they're only now elucidating. So what happens is, let's say you get one generation and my parent, my grandparents generation is probably a good example. They would have taken 20 to 30 years to get into the disease state. And they, you know, when they had their kids, they were in their early 20s. So their kids were born 20 years into that disease state. So my parents were 20 years in. Well, by the time my parents had children, they were in their early 20s, and they'd been eating that way. So my mother was 40 years into the disease state. So when she gave birth to my sister and I, and I was behind my sister, so I would have gotten it even worse. We were born now 60 years in the disease state. Mm -hmm. So we had to be much, much more careful about how we ate. And that's why we see childhood obesity rising so fast in the United States. It's, it's not because we're overfeeding. If you go back and you analyze diets of kids over the last 100 years in the United States and activity levels, they're actually not that far off. Even with all the sitting and the, you know, all that, it turns out, other than child labor, their activity and their diet levels really haven't gone that far out of whack. 
And so what what you see is this accumulation of disease state, and which means we're the first symptom of the disease state, the first noticeable symptom is gaining body fat. So if now you're you're I almost said shitting out. If you're giving birth to children that are 80 years into a disease state, you know, and, and it's a, a more complicated curve than that, but we'll just say 80 years into the disease state, no matter how they eat as kids, if they're eating a carb-based diet, they're going to get fat. And so you will see a very rapid rise in childhood obesity three or four generations out. Um, and if you use that, it, it's crazy. Like you can literally go to any country and tell where they are. Wow. And, and so I guess like fast food and things like that are just now getting to be a, a you know, prominent part of the diet over there. And no, or, they're just, it, it's not that, I mean, they're, they're not like in Serbia. Uh, I mean, I have a hard it's not easy to go find a McDonald's and the only other fast food chain here is there's a single Kentucky fried chicken in Belgrade. <laughs> so it, it's not the fast food, you know, what's happened in Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe is one of the healthiest places I've been. And, you know, because of communism and some horrible things that happened with diverting of crops and things like that, they really didn't have, vast amounts of weed and potatoes and things like that that they could have on hand all the time those things were somewhat limited well now that they've come out of that they're and they were like that for a long time so they were able to avoid getting too deep into the disease state even when they were having kids but now their breakfast has totally shifted their meals have totally shifted they go to the local bakery there's bakeries everywhere and everybody has their first meal from a bakery in the morning here uh, and that's been a radical shift in their culture before their breakfast were was you know basically sausage and eggs that was breakfast mm -hmm. um and there's been a radical radical shift uh all across eastern europe but at the moment they're all still super healthy yeah i mean if I eat pancakes for breakfast, I am wrecked for the rest of the day. Yeah. But, oh, man, <laughs> breakfast is the best time for pancakes is the important <laughs> conundrum there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so as far as, like, you know, backloading um, or carb night, is there any worry about, you know, cereal or you know sort of these things with a lot of preservatives in them i mean should we be focusing on different types of carbs or uh no in those scenarios it doesn't make much of a difference uh if if you're eating carbohydrates all the time it can make a huge difference but in carb night and carb backloading it's not the effects that would normally exacerbate the disease state, uh, they're, they're just mitigated. So you have much more freedom as to what you can eat. And then for the preservative preservatives and things like that, uh, I mean, they're, they're actually minutia. There's no, there's no poisoning effect. There's no, there's really no 
metabolic consequences to them. It's such minor amounts compared to other toxins that we get from eating vegetables and that, and the way the research has come out, like if preservatives or those kind of things are dangerous to the metabolism, so on and so forth, then eating vegetables is a thousand times more dangerous. And, and they're not. So that just means that those kind of minutiae details must be meaningless. Can you go into why vegetables would be a thousand times? <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, I mean, a tomato has 50 known carcinogens and it produces them in quantities a thousand times what you get from pesticide from man-made pesticides on any other food product that you eat. I mean, 50 known carcinogens and we're eating them at extremely high levels and every vegetable is that way, like broccoli, uh, kale, all of those things. Those are heavy metal accumulators. So if they're grown anywhere that's had any heavy metal exposure like thallium or uranium or if the areas suffered a drought, so those heavy metals are accumulating in the water that the plants are getting, they suck it up and we're eating that. And those are highly toxic. And we get most of our toxic shit from vegetables, from vegetation. So that means if the little minute stuff that's the preservatives and the other things, if those are such a huge deal, people should be dropping dead from eating vegetables like crazy. I see. And and they're not. So that means that and all those preservative things and pesticides and all that, that's always just been conjecture, conjecture. Nobody has ever proven that those things are toxic in even high doses. It's just this conjecture. Well, if that conjecture is true and the studies that show that those could be poisonous are the identical studies that show that the chemicals in vegetation is poisonous, then vegetables should be killing people too. And they're not. So – it's very, very unlikely that they play any role whatsoever in health, diet, obesity, metabolism, all that kind of stuff. So on the flip side, what about like the non-GMO and steroids and things that our meat could have in it? Uh, uh, I mean, that that's a little more interesting. Um, you know, steroids and hormones in meat, uh, like, would be of almost no concern whatsoever. Uh, they're, they're, um, they're broken down when they're cooked, for one, when you cook the meat. And two, they cannot, they can't pass through the digestive system. Like, they're, they're just not digestible. Estrogens are more dangerous because they can pass through and they are a little bit more stable um, but what's interesting is, you know, meat from grass fed cows versus conventional fed cows, it is different, but the dietary effects are identical. Like you can't tell a difference in people who've eaten one of those two over a period of time. There's no difference. But milk, on the other hand, is really interesting. Conventional raised milk, because they do try to keep the cows in an extended state of lactation through hormones low-level hormones it turns out that milk has much 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 lower levels of estrogens and progesterones and other things 
that are bioactive in humans, whereas the grass-fed cows, milk from them has really high levels, high enough levels to cause deviations in young males, particularly who are fed that milk. Um, so it, when you really dig into the science, like it starts turning everything on its head. Uh, for GMO and non-GMO, to be honest, GMO in my mind is a much safer route to trying to produce vegetation for human consumption than the alternative, it, alternative, which is hybridization. Because when you hybridize plants, you're trying to get a certain characteristic, like pest resistance or whatever, but that might come with other issues. And, and that's happened several times. If you hybridize plants and sell them, you don't have to go through any regulation process. Whereas if it's GMO, it has to be tested on animals and people to make sure that there's no unwanted side effects. And I think it was some sort of lettuce. I can't remember what it was. I'd have to look it up. But it was a new lettuce that was hybridized to be pest resistant. And it was amazing. It completely resisted pests. So it could be organic. They didn't have to use any fertilizers or whatever. Made it to the stores. People going to the store were breaking out in rashes and having inflammation and like all kinds of spots it turned out you know the plant was so pest resistant the poison it was producing was poisoning people just by touching it oh my god <laughs> and but the that's that it made it to the stores yeah before we realized that it's a big yeah. problem i think <laughs> yeah and well that's because if you hybridize a plant you don't have to do any testing you don't have to do anything because that's quote unquote natural but if you go in and selectively disable a gene or selectively turn on a gene, then all of a sudden it's become a Franken food and it needs to be tested and fed to animals and go through approval processes and all this stuff. So in a real sense, GMOs and those things are much safer to consume because we know there's no unintended side effects. Wow. So yeah, that's why I said this stuff starts <laughs> flipping on its head. Yeah, I don't even want to know how much information you know. It would probably disturb me. Um, <laughs> uh, so, like, we're probably going to be creating, you know, meat in a lab soon. Do you see that to be a, an issue, um, or should we be sticking with the cow? Oh. Uh, so there's a nutritional issue to consider, and, you know, one method of doing that is they sample cow muscle tissue with a biopsy, and then they actually can get that tissue to grow independently of the cow. And nutritionally, that's fine. Um, the problem is environmentally, uh, we can't get rid of cattle. Actually, we need more cattle than we have now um, because... One thing that cattle does, of course, it eats grass, but it also poops and pisses all over the place where it eats grass, and it tramples that down. And then that actually becomes the substrate for a layer of topsoil. And all of our farming, everything we're doing is stripping topsoil at an amazing rate. It doesn't matter how much fertilizer you put on. It doesn't matter how much mineral um, minerals you add to supplement the soil. And a good example of this is 
basically across the Midwest in the United States, the farming belt from Indiana to basically Wyoming. Top level, top soil levels, on average, they measured in feet. And on average, it was somewhere between 8 and 10 feet across that entire belt of the country. Now, they're measuring in inches. So in 100 years, we have almost depleted the topsoil in the United States. And the only way to regenerate topsoil is with, especially in grasslands, is with herding animals. And so you need to have large herds of animals on that land replenishing the topsoil so that things can grow. And if you have to have all those cows there, then you might as well eat them. It's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, you know, there's a lot of issues that people discuss without really understanding all of the I, I'm not saying you. I mean, like the the talking heads on the media and stuff like that. They don't understand the intricacies of all of it. Like like, oh, cows release methane and it's horrible for the environment. Well, yeah, methane is a really powerful greenhouse gas, but the methane they're releasing is part of the natural carbon cycle. You know, that carbon was captured by grass, the cows ate the grass, it fermented in their first stomach, and they belched out some methane. Like, cows don't fart methane, they belch methane. So that carbon that's being released is carbon that was already there. It's part of the natural carbon cycle. It's not adding to the greenhouse effect. What adds to the greenhouse effect is digging up old carbon reserves that are buried in the soil and releasing those into the atmosphere. Those are two very, very different things. So you can't say, oh, well, cow, we have to get rid of cows because they contribute to global warming. They absolutely do not because they're part of the normal carbon cycle. Um, sorry, I'm on a rant there because I just hate that I, stuff. No, you're good. I mean, what do you uh, – what, what hope do we have? As far as, you know, is Tesla, I mean, I know that Tesla's, you know, cars, you know, obviously don't uh, release any carbon, but uh, the manufacturing of their cars shows that it's higher, it's like higher than, <laughs> than most. It is high for not only for the manufacturing of the cars, but the raw materials for the batteries actually the, uh, the mining for those produce produces a lot of greenhouse gas emission. Uh, so that's uh, one problem there. And then people don't think about, like, where's the power coming from? It's coming from a power plant that might be run by coal. So the net savings is turns out to be somewhat minimal, and you only get a saving depending on the state you live in. And also how long you're willing to keep the car. Most electric cars, and we'll just average it out for you know all the states. Some use gas, some use coal, whatever. Uh, if you average it out, you have to keep your electric vehicle for at least 8 to 10 years before you're at the break-even. And then you'll start saving, saving on You'll start saving the environment after the 10th year. Well, how many people keep a car for 10 years these days? Nobody. Yeah. I mean, in some states, it's lower, like five years. In five years, you'll start to 
break even and recover. But, you know, uh, people still don't even keep cars for five years. Um, So the problem isn't, well, a problem is obviously the electric cars and versus gas cars. But the bigger problem is the source of the energy that are going into those cars. And right now we still don't have a handle on that. Yeah, the system seems uh, really tough to really tough to wrestle down at this point because uh, car companies don't want you to have they they want you to buy a new car every year. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. So and is there any hope there as far as? Uh, I. Th- I think there's a path forward where everybody gets everybody who's already making a bunch of money gets to continue to make a bunch of money now and in the future. And it would be an upheaval. And and actually it could be done in a way that at least in the United States the private citizens could have free power and the only places paying for power would be large businesses. Um and, and it's actually not that complex. You know, you start doing municipal projects to build uh, photovoltaic power sites, more importantly, solar thermal power plants. Like huge solar thermal power plants are so ridiculously efficient. It's insane. Photovoltaics are still actually pretty problematic because you have to replace them every five to ten years with the minerals and the manufacturer and all that. They actually have a pretty large carbon footprint. But compared to a solar solar thermal plant, I mean, those things have almost no maintenance and no carbon footprint after the construction's over. It's they're incredible. And nuclear, I know people shy away from that, but we have like um, breeder reactors now that can almost fit in a suitcase. You know, you could have smaller ones in distant areas so you could get rid of power lines, like all kinds of things like that that are all completely doable. The technology's there. It would free up U.S. natural gas, which we would then incentivize to send to places like India and Africa, which then instantly lowers their carbon footprint while increasing their power output because methane is more effective at producing energy than coal, which is what they now use. So you're getting them off of coal. You're transitioning the U.S. at the same time. So everybody's still making money. Our power can be replaced slowly. There would be jobs in it. There would be lower carbon. I mean, and for the first time in a long time, the United States would be 100% energy dependent, like forever. Um, so in a nutshell, that's the plan that could essentially start to save the world. Are you? I've actually been thinking about that? that for a couple of years. <laughs> what, what was that? Are you going to spearhead that one? Uh, I mean, <laughs> you know at the end of the day, I, I'm obviously fascinated with the human body, so I've stuck to that course. And at the end of the day, you know, it's very apparent to me that that's the legacy that I want to leave behind because when people are sick and struggling and stressed and their body's falling apart and they're on medication after medication that they have to figure out how to afford, they don't have the excess cognitive space to contemplate making the world better for their kids. They're worried about trying to get to the next day or the next month. Yeah. 
Um, so I think I'm on, for me, I think I'm spearheading the right piece of the puzzle to allow some other things to start to happen. Awesome. Well, I'm, uh, I mean, I could go for, I could go forever, but, uh, (laughs) actually I already decided I, I'll give you like an extra 30, 45 minutes because a lot of this has been me rambling and I really wanted it to be like questions that more personal questions if you have them like not oh are you married or you know right not that but you know i'm having this trouble with my diet or do you have any advice for this and you just kept topics that i have a tendency to rant on so (laughs) well they're big topics and i think they're worth talking about um and okay well i do have so one thing, cholesterol. Um, my friend uh, went low carb and then did it for probably a month, got his blood work done, and his cholesterol was through the roof. Um, so naturally gets off of it. Um, is cholesterol an issue uh, as far as LDL and forgot the other one? Um, HDL. HDL. Uh, LDL. Is <laughs> <laughs> is is it something to worry about anymore, or is it just the way you know? I've, I've heard you talk about how your body metabolizes cholesterol and all that. But. Yeah, it can potentially be something to worry about. So. There's a couple issues. You know, when you first get off the carbs, um, you have a stash of excess cholesterol uh, in the liver that is going to get dumped. So a lot of people could initially see a rise in cholesterol levels depending on, you know, where they are. Um, and you then the next very thing... high carb before that. Oh, yeah. So I would totally expect him to have a sizable dump of cholesterol for a period. Um, Where's it and, dumping from? Uh, well, so when you eat a lot of carbohydrates and you're in the disease state, they can't get into the muscle like they're supposed to, and they can't get into fat cells like they're supposed to. So they, so it pretty much all gets pushed through the liver, well, and nervous system tissue, so it's damaging your brain and your nerves and all that kind of stuff. But it it gets pushed into the liver, uh, where a lot of it's being converted into cholesterol, essentially. Uh, so that's where it's coming from. And then the cholesterol, and then the liver gets clogged with cholesterol. That's basically fatty liver disease. Mm. Uh, so that's what's happening. So as you take off the excess supply of carbohydrates that's for that's driving that process all of a sudden the liver has an opportunity to start to try to release that cholesterol at a maximal rate so it can get back to normal and so you'll see a dumping of cholesterol in a lot of people and oftentimes it's the bad cholesterol because they were on a high carb diet so can this cause other things like, you know, IBS or other digestive issues? Uh, well, yeah, that's what we were talking about with um, your, your digestive tract has all kinds of receptors 
on them and those need to upregulate to handle the new nutrient flow and the absorption of other nutrients more effectively. So, so switching can have digestive problems and then the carbohydrates themselves could cause digestive problems even if you just kept eating carbohydrates because they downregulate a stuff, a lot of stuff, they cause a lot of damage, uh, so on and so forth. So, you know, those transitions can be not pleasant for some people. And, and, And to go back to the cholesterol, it's likely not dangerous. But... They could be in a scenario where they already have some clogging somewhere. Um, so something like a carotid artery scan would be advisable. And if it's pretty clean, then the cholesterol levels are absolutely nothing to worry about. If it's not, then it, 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 it becomes more of a puzzle where medication like statins might be recommended because they can slow the release of the cholesterol in that situation. Um, But, but those aren't something they'd want to stay on indefinitely. It's just something that they would need to use to bridge over without having any potential consequences that they don't want. Okay, cool. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd like to try and help friends out with uh, with diet and nutrition, but sometimes it's not an easy it's not an easy thing to to do when to go against conventional medical wisdom and uh, people have resist it quite a bit. Yeah, it's hard when they ask questions that like you can't answer. Right, and that's pretty much. And that's not just you. That's most diet experts. If you ask them something out of their wheelhouse, they'll brush it off or they'll, they'll never say, I don't know. They'll just make shit up or they just don't answer it. Say, oh, that's not important. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not because they're stupid. It, it's really because, like we talked about earlier, that science of health doesn't exist. So there, nobody knows what the right answers are in each case so they can't possibly say the right thing which anybody who's starting to approach a new dietary paradigm is gonna be really paranoid because it's like why can't you answer these questions if you know what you're telling me is the best diet for me um it makes it really tough and it makes it easy to jump from guru to guru yeah yeah well Personally, um, so I'm 6'3", 200 pounds. Um, you know, I told you a little bit about my past. So very, like you, I just, just Pop-Tarts and pizza rolls and things like that mm-hmm. growing up. Uh, <laughs> and for the past five years, I've pretty much been, you know, carb night or carb backloading or somewhere in between mm-hmm. um i've had issues gaining muscle mass um my limbs and my dad is the same type of build and my brothers are too you know i had to tend to carry all my fat in my torso mm-hmm. and my limbs are you know skinnier uh so i have a long lean frame but 
you know, my joints are relatively small as well, but I, I don't, I've had some issues. I'm a quote unquote hard gainer, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what are some tweaks that I could make? Um, uh, my resistance training looks like three or four times a week. Um, just mainly the big lifts, squats, deadlifts, bench, press, um, and maybe occasionally some accessory work. Uh, what are some adjustments I can make to maybe gain more muscle? I feel like my when I've gone the traditional bodybuilding route, I my body just breaks down. I can't handle Ben Pukulski's, you know, whatever it is, 1080, 1090X or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, it's just my joints break down. I just get hurt every single time. Yeah. So, I mean, there is, I mean, at one point in my life, I scoffed at the hard gainer thing, but now that I've actually learned how muscle cells work and how they grow and can't grow and whatever, there, there is a legitimate hard gainer scenario, so to speak. Um, and I'll just be honest with you is it is hard to overcome. Um, part of that is because of the, you will have predominantly more oxidative muscle tissue is my guess. And in that scenario, it's harder to get satellite cells to mobilize, which are really the backbone of growing new muscle. It, it becomes very, it becomes much more difficult for that to happen uh, in your scenario. And that's what we usually call a hard gainer. Now, this might not be the answer you want. I'm just giving you this, this answer to elucidate things. Like one thing that can change that very rapidly and cause rapid gains in hard gainers is their testosterone levels, whether that's augmenting their natural levels, making sure that's working fine or supplementing. And that's because basically if you have heightened levels of anabolic hormones in your system, they force the satellite cells to mobilize. The satellite cells almost have no choice at that point. Um, so those are the extremes you're at. You're at the extreme of very difficult to mobilize those satellite cells to grow new tissue. And the other extreme is you, you would have to take exogenous hormones to get gains like everybody else. Well, actually, you'd get like really fast gains at first, and then you get gains like everybody else. Uh, so that, that middle road in there is doing everything possible in your scenario to cut down on the oxidative work of your muscles. And so that means all of your exercises, all of your weights that you choose are all going to be set up for a significant period of time that you are not, you're rarely ever going above six reps on anything and by that, I mean you're totally exhausted and depleted at that sixth rep. You couldn't do a seventh if you wanted to. Um, and you would need to be in that that range. You don't need a ton of sets. Like that's 
that's not what this is about. It's about preventing your muscles to even getting into an oxidative state or in a scenario where they can be oxidative and still do work. Did that make sense? Yes. Um, I've actually started, I just started a <clears throat> Pavel Tatsaline's sort of five by five program. Mm -hmm. um, I had some luck with it. Of course, I'm, <clears throat> I ran into some, some shoulder issues. So I've got to get, I've got to get some uh, work done there. I think my scap is, I've got a wing scap issue and my shoulders leaning forward. So can't really bench or anything so that's not a if you have any guidance there on maybe good pts to consider yeah there's actually a really good exercise for winging and the rolled shoulder uh do you know if you have a torn labrum by chance uh, surely i don't uh yeah surely <laughs> are you sure I mean, I benched 400 pounds weighing 200 pounds with a torn labrum. I, I think I don't because it's my left shoulder and it just, it doesn't hurt doing anything else until I increase my volume and then it bothers me and then I take time off and it goes away. But you, if you can, and I, I know the U.S., I, it's amazing to me, like here I can go get an MRI for like $50 whenever I want. Like. Okay. It's amazing. I don't need a doctor's. I can just walk in and get one. So, and I know it's not that convenient in the in the U.S. Um, but if you can get one, I highly recommend. If you haven't had one, getting one and telling them you're focusing on the connective tissue and the cartilage and the labrum specifically, because um, it really doesn't hurt. But over time, it changes the mechanics of the shoulder, which can then start to cause. Um, nervous system problems it can cause the shoulder to ride in a different position in the socket which gives you a forward shoulder appearance um it it, it can do all these things and, yeah. and it sounds like that might be possible and you would just never know other than what you're describing now like you can work out fine and then all of a sudden it starts to hurt and you have to take off and it feels better and then you can go back um that's also pretty typical of a labrum tear and a, and a labrum tear is not a big deal. It just, you have to know you have it so you can work with it. Yeah. I'm, I'm familiar with the, the labrum issues, uh, just cause I was a pitcher and mm -hmm. like, yeah. it's just a lot of shoulder issues there. Um, but, <laughs> you but I'm, right, I'm right handed though. So, I mean, my left shoulder is definitely likes to sit forward and I have to concentrate and, you know, I try to do some of the shoulder blade type exercises to, to get it moving properly, but things that I found on YouTube, but I might, I'm going to have to consult somebody otherwise. Yeah, I can, well, I can give you a description of the exercise, which isn't good. I think I have a video, they're, they're called shoulder dumps. It's like the lowest level thing you can do. It helps to fix winging actually pretty quickly. And depending on how your shoulder's setting, there's um, there there's different ways that I could describe for you of how to set yourself up on certain exercises. 
so that you don't exacerbate whatever's going on with that shoulder. Um, whether it's a torn labrum or whatever, something is wrong in there that it's not, it sounds like it's not holding your shoulder correctly in the socket. And usually when I hear that, like it's almost always a torn labrum. <laughs> okay. Didn't think that was going to be any. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's really not a big deal. They can't really fix it anyway, but at least if you know, then you can modify, well, your proprioception, essentially. You can modify it slowly as you work out to where naturally you'll start to hold everything in the right position and it it won't matter anymore. Okay. Um, but that's that's just what I'm hearing from what you described. Like everything you described is like textbook. You've got a tear in your labrum. Huh. Okay. Yeah, I find when I, I lift my hips a little higher um, that my shoulder gets in a better position. And uh, that's, you know, like when I really squeeze my glutes and, and mm -hmm. make sure that I'm, that I'm activated throughout the entire chain, that I, I find that that's, it feels better. But there's still a threshold as far as weight goes when I have to exert so much that I can't keep it in place anymore. Yeah, yeah. When you flex the glutes, it actually sends the signal all the way up along your paraspinatus, which helps to pull in your shoulder blade, which will help to pull the shoulder back. Normally, that's what you should always do because it then always holds the shoulder in place. But if you're healthy and you don't have any of these issues, you don't think about that because it naturally sits in the right place. Um, but doing what you're doing, it, it's exactly the kind of thing you want to do. You want that spinal column, which almost essentially starts at the glutes. You want that activated and that will help, help pull things together even all the way up in the shoulder region, which then helps keep your, your shoulder more in place. Okay. Okay. So, um, so going back to the hard gainer, is there oh, any, yeah. Yeah, is is there any recommend other than taking testosterone? You're saying just a you know five by five type program. Yeah, keeping those those reps really low, which means you might need more more sets just to totally wipe out your glycogen. Um, your you mentioned your joints, so I don't know if this is the right option for you, but um heavy duty style training where you are focused on the eccentric part of the movement can have a very large effect on the type of muscle damage needed to get satellite cells to mobilize. Um, so you don't need to make your entire training regimen for months heavy duty, but supplementing with that can help help move you along in the right direction um what's your diet right now um so i'm around 2800 calories i mean do you just want me to take the take you through a typical day uh let's just start simple cbl or cns it's style it's cns mostly Okay, well, so there's another issue. Unless you have glycogen stores to deplete, 
the depleting of stored glycogen is one of the strongest signals for muscle growth. So if you're on CNS, you are perpetually training in a low glycogen scenario. So, I mean, you've really cut down your growth signal potential. Ah, uh, yeah, my, my goals were always to be more lean than muscular. So I, I drifted towards CNS, uh, not realizing that. Yeah, you, you just, you have to balance it out um, depending on your goals. You know, that's, that's and, and unfortunately that's the hard part with the books, right? One's really geared towards being lean and the other's really geared towards, well, almost already being somewhat muscular and getting much more muscular and ripped. So the middle ground where you are requires some more attention and a concern right now you said you have you carry your weight basically in the abdomen so does that mean you have some softness that you want to get rid of there is that or yeah just, just love handles you know are still there and i have some you know underneath my arms uh you know so yeah interesting have you had your you're, and I, I can cut this part out if you want me to. Um, sure. Have you, have you had your testosterone levels or anything like that tested? I mean, uh, do you know where you are? And, and I, I'm not, it's not that I'm focusing on drugs or something like that, but those imbalances can also make a huge difference on trying to get rid of body fat and uh, like that you're holding on to love handles, even on CNS and with your workouts is making me suspect that there could be an issue there. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I could be, I mean, obviously I'm not perfect. I probably backload twice a week really. Um, but I, it's like Friday and Saturday. So I don't know if those are issues that I'm doubling up. No, you should, you should, the, I mean, mostly for guys, especially if you just aren't holding a ton of weight in the abdomen. Uh, like the love handles themselves are usually pretty easy to get rid of. And it, it can be somewhat annoying because the love handles go down, but, you know, people still have a pooch in the front a little bit that takes longer. I tend to show abs before my love, love handles start going away. Wow. <laughs> That's... <laughs> That that would still make me think maybe <laughs> you're a little bit out of whack hormonally, but but maybe not. Um, but okay. again, it, it's one of those data points that can help help to make a better decision on what what it is you you definitely need to do versus what it is that might work. Do you see okay. what I'm saying? Like you, you you know, I don't want to tell you well try this and then um two months later it's like okay we'll try this and then two months later it's try this when i could just know and say okay here's what you need to do and i'm not going to tell you you have to start sticking yourself with a needle it's just okay i know that's a problem here's how you need to work with it yeah so can i just get traditional blood work done and i should send it to you or somebody else yeah I, you can send it i mean we'll just 
well, tacking onto this, obviously it's not a it's not a big deal for me to look at it. So you can just get that, and if you don't mind my support person seeing it, you can send it through support. Yeah, um, that's fine. Okay, yeah, and then you, you just send it to support, and like she always gets everything to me. And if I don't respond that I got it, she'll bug me just for me to acknowledge that I've seen it. So that's that's <laughs> the best way to get stuff like that to me. And um, should I just go to a walk-in clinic, or should I do something like 23andMe, or is there a better? No, I like I don't think you should ever do 23andMe. Okay. And discourage any family member you have from ever doing 23andMe. <laughs> Um, just a giant upsell to get you to pay more money for, uh, it's, it's a huge, it's actually a huge, huge problem. They're not profitable. They actually just had a major purchase by some health insurance, like huge health insurance conglomerate that they're selling their data to. And that data is going to be used to increase insurance rates and not just yours let's say you get a 23andme test and they find out you have some potential problems your insurance rates will go up in perpetuity but so will every person that they can connect you to in your family parents siblings cousins children all of them forever will have an uptick and so by now most americans are probably in an unfortunate zone of where they have a really high risk they're paying too much for health insurance because one family member somewhere went and got a 23andme test so don't go to 23andme uh, <laughs> got it's it. usually you're in at a, i think it said you're in uh tennessee is that right yeah memphis um I'd have to look and see what labs are there. Uh, like I know what the, I know the lab system in Arizona, and I assume there's something like that in Tennessee where you can just go in and order some labs, and they'll they'll draw some blood and do it. Okay. Um, and uh, you could probably Google that too and and find it. Okay. It shouldn't yeah, be. Again, I'm spoiled here in Serbia because I can walk down the street. There's all kinds of little labs. I can go in and order whatever I want for, you know, like a hundred bucks. I mean, it's insane. Yeah, I always seem to. Nobody seems to know that uh, America and New Zealand are like the only two countries that can advertise like prescription drugs. Yeah. And it always blows people's minds. Like, no, you go to another country, you don't see all these, these yeah. garbage. Everything's different. And I'm not in their public health care system. This is just all stuff to pay out of pocket. Yeah. Um, That's awesome. It's, yeah, it's unbelievably cheap. And it just makes me wonder, like, where is all that money going in the U.S.? Like, it in a certain it just doesn't make any sense to me where that money goes yeah but yeah if you can get that that test um i'll be able to dial things in i'll, I'll be able to tell you one or two things to dial it in maybe better if that's necessary but 
um, if you can introduce some heavy duty movement in those higher intensity, lower rep, keeping all of your exercises in those ranges, uh, those are your best places to start. Okay. And eating carbs a little bit more. Okay. And like, it's, you know, you just say eat carbs. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I can eat a lot of carbs. Yeah. Um, so where six, three, 200 pounds, kind of lean, just a little bit of softness in the midsection. Right. I'd probably say I'm around 15% body fat if I were to guess. Uh, so those kind of workouts are going to use for you. And this is just a ballpark figure. Uh, sorry. Uh, it's the best I can do off the top of my head. Um, you're, you're going to be somewhere in the, at least 50 grams of carbs. And that's just a guess on average across a muscle group. So let's say you train legs, you'll, you'll probably use somewhere around 50 grams of glycogen essentially. So that's what you need to make sure is replenished after workouts. So somewhere between if you, if you just want to stay on the safe side, like if you added 25 to 30 grams in a post-workout or add that extra amount before bed or in your last meal each day to, okay. to stay on the safe side, like 25, 30 grams extra over whatever else you're getting. Uh, the, those would be the two places I would start. Cause you're just, if you're CNS five days of the week in your training, you just really aren't, in a metabolic situation to get a maximum growth signal in the first place. And then on top of it, you physiologically are in a situation where you have to get an absolute extreme maximum growth signal to get the muscle growth. So you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot. So I still have carb shock. Um, still got like three things of that. I'm, like I oh. bought like a year supply. <laughs> oh, awesome. Um, so that's pretty much. I have just like a flavorless protein and then carb shock, and that's all I'm taking um, post workout right now. Yeah. Yeah, there's I- n- not very many grams of carbs in the carb shock. Right. So, like, eat a. Do you like bananas? Yeah. And eat, eat a ripe banana immediately after your workout okay like there you go you can try that eat a ripe banana immediately after and what protein shake you still an hour after is that where you're uh you know whenever yeah i just make sure i get it in (laughs) yeah (laughs) because it turns out uh so you're you're experienced lifter at this point right I would say that even though I don't feel like my my body represents that. 
Uh, well, that's okay. You know, if you've been training for a significant period, well, over six months, if you've been resistance training over six months, the peak of protein synthesis from a workout occurs four hours after the end of the workout. Wow. So, I mean, that's a huge window. And if you're going to ingest carbs immediately after, or protein, sorry, immediately after working out, then you need to make adjustments so that your body can release the protein, the amino acids appropriately to the peak and past it. And that's why my recommendation in general is, you know, I tell people have a hundred grams of protein in their post-workout shake if they want, because that just makes it simple. You don't have to think about it. Your body will take care of the rest. Um, or you can just not be too concerned about it at the moment and have your protein shakes somewhere in that window. Say a hundred grams of protein in your protein shake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For people okay. who are really serious, but their life's really busy. So it's hard to get everything tuned in or whatever. It's like, you know, just, have this like crazy protein shake after okay. your training. Yeah, and they'll they'll get they'll so start to get the results. That doesn't does that are you applying that to me? Uh hundred grams might be too much for you. I, I don't know what the rest of your diet is to answer that correctly or accurately. Um but I mean you could easily do just just from your size alone, you could easily do anywhere from 60 to 80 in that post-workout shake if you want to cover your bases. Yeah, I was keeping it at like 30, which is what you, uh, yeah, what I've heard you recommend before. Yeah, uh, that would have been an old recommendation. It's, it, it's really, really <laughs> tough. <laughs> Complicated. Well, no, it's just tough because, you know, I started this before, obviously, I know as much as I do now. Right. And I always approached it as a scientist saying, well, this is the best I I know now, and it's the best that science is pointing to right now. And now I'm in a place where a lot of those statements are different, and some people have a really hard time with that. It's like, well, you said – and. I know you're not doing that, but it's hard for me because like, well, you said, and I was like, well, I know I said that, but I also said that I could be wrong. And unfortunately in that statement, I was wrong. So, you know, get over it and do what I'm saying now. So at this point, I essentially lost Philip. Uh, like I said, I cut off all of the several times. I was like, hello, hello. Uh, so that's off there. And, uh, we did reconnect just to finish things up, but there was nothing really significant we said, so I didn't include that in this podcast, but I hope everybody enjoyed that, and I look forward to speaking with everybody again. All right, that's it for now.